0: How does 90 days turn into five years? We'll talk about why the Medicare appeals process doesn't work, but there's very good news for providers thanks to a recent Fifth Circuit decision.
1: I'm Ann Hollenbeck. And I'm Courtney Carroll. An audit by the Office of the Inspector General found that 31% of telemedicine claims did not meet established requirements. We'll discuss Medicare's limited reimbursement of telemedicine, how providers can respond, and what the future might hold. You're listening to Jones Day Talks, Healthcare and Life Sciences.
0: Courtney, I am so excited to talk today about the great case result out of the Fifth Circuit that our lawyers here at Jones Day worked on for the provider.
1: Yes, this was a huge win for our provider clients, especially those who are facing recoupments from Medicare. So I'm excited to talk about it. But before we get into the details of the case, and it might be helpful to give a little background on how the Medicare appeals process works. That's
0: a great idea because it's complicated. Yeah. So first, a Medicare contractor identifies an overpayment. And as we know, that could be through just a routine audit and it's usually of sample Mm. claims. Using that data and the error rate, these contractors often simply extrapolate the results to the entire population of claims for a provider. And then they throw out this grand total overpayment amount. The right. contractor then simply sends a letter to the provider demanding that overpayment. Yeah, and sometimes... It's really a crazy situation.
1: It, it really is. And sometimes those extrapolated amounts and subsequent overpayment demands can be huge, millions and millions of dollars, depending on the sample and the universe of claims.
0: Oh, yeah, easily. So there is supposed to be due process and multiple levels of appeals, but that system as so many clients have experienced, is not working as it's designed.
1: Right. And so to your point, there's supposed to be sort of these various levels of appeal. So After that receipt of the demand letter, the first level is really just the provider submitting what's called a request for redetermination to the Medicare contractor. And it's just asking the contractor, hey, will you reconsider or reevaluate what you found?
0: So then what's funny, the second level, the provider asks for another reconsideration, Right. This time from the Qualified Independent Contractor, which commonly is known as the QIC.
1: But may not really be that independent, of course. And oh, so, no, no. At least you have a different contract. So the first level, you're, you're going back to the same guy who found you had an overpayment to begin with, so not a great likelihood for success. And then the second level, you're supposedly going to this independent contractor. But as our clients know, those First two levels of appeals are rarely successful. And then, making matters even worse, if the provider loses at that second level, Medicare is permitted to start recouping the money from your current claims as repayment for those alleged overpayments.
0: So, that recoupment can be devastating for providers because it's that first dollar amount sent in the demand letter. Right. That's why the next level of appeal is supposed to be resolved within 90 days.
1: Yes. So after that QIC level, then under the regulation, the provider has an opportunity for a de novo review with a live hearing before a true neutral arbitrator, the administrative law judge, or ALJ. And as you said, the hearing is supposed to be conducted and the ALJ is supposed to render a decision within 90 days of the provider's appeal. And that's because they potentially have millions of dollars on the line. But that rarely happens because the system is now so backlogged. Currently, there's 600,000 cases pending oh before gosh. the ALJ stage. And that it ends up taking three to five years to actually ever have Jeez. a hearing.
0: I mean, five years is a lot longer than 90 days. Yeah. And actually, that's what this recent Fifth Circuit case is all about and why we're so excited about it. The case is called Family Rehabilitation versus Azar. So, Courtney, here, the provider was seeking a suspension of that recoupment until the ALJ hearing, right?
1: Right. So, the provider had already gone through the first two levels of appeals and had actually had the alleged overpayment amount reduced very minorly. It, it ended up, I think it started at $7.8 million and was reduced to $7.6 million. Okay, not, not so helpful. Then. Right. <laughs> so then CMS was about to start recoupment, and the provider sued to enjoin the recoupment because they said, hey, if CMS is allowed to recoup all these funds, we're going to go bankrupt before we even see that ALJ hearing in five years. And the district court dismissed for lack of subject matter jurisdiction because the provider had not exhausted its administrative remedies. As we said, the provider only made it through the first two levels, but of course it knew, hey, we're not going to see an ALJ for years. And actually, as the Fifth Circuit noted in its opinion, the ALJ hearing would not happen within 90 days or even within 900 days.
0: Right. So the district court dismissed Sua Sponte, but as I think back to my constitutional law class back in law school, under the case Matthews versus Eldridge, courts do have jurisdiction over procedural due process claims that are quote collateral Mm -hmm. to the substantive agency decision.
1: The court found that family rehab was only seeking a hearing before the recruitment, not a determination as to whether the recruitment itself was right or wrong. So that made the provider's claim collateral.
0: So then the second part of the Matthews case would require the provider to raise a colorable claim of some type of irreparable harm. Of course, that doesn't seem too hard to meet.
1: Yeah, I mean, right, the colorable claim standard is lower. And so in this case, the provider had, as we've mentioned, pled that it was going to go out of business before it got to the hearing, potentially harming patients and its employees. And the court, again, sort of recognizing a colorable claim, they have to take the pleadings on their face. And so they said, hey, we don't know. We, the court, don't know for sure if this provider will go bankrupt, but they say that they will. And so we take that as true, and that's sufficient. So given the collateral nature of the claim and the assumed irreparable injury from the pleadings, but the Circuit held that the district court did have jurisdiction, so the appeals court then remanded back to the district court.
0: So, Courtney, this case result is just a lifesaver, obviously, for family rehabilitation. And any other provider client who may be facing recoupment, what are some of the takeaways? Not every provider is facing bankruptcy or could argue that, but tell us how they could use this case.
1: Obviously, as you said, if you have a real threat to your business and livelihood, there is an avenue to pursue that in the, and challenge the backlog in the district court. And that, in and of itself, is huge. But another takeaway for our providers who may not be facing such a large recoupment or bankruptcy is that they just shouldn't be intimidated by this massive backlog at the ALJ level and should have the confidence to appeal overpayment determinations. Some of our Jones Day attorneys who've been working in this field, including Rebecca Plowman, who actually represented family rehab in this case have started to see Medicare actually suspend payments to providers based on very small overpayment determinations. And suspensions are are different from recoupments, but suspensions can last for six months or longer. And all it requires is that the contractor find something that can support a quote-unquote credible allegation of fraud. And so what we've started seeing is that these contractors' findings are being used if they haven't been appealed by the provider as a claim of a credible allegation of fraud. And then CMS is suspending all Medicare payments to that provider.
0: Yeah, that's outrageous. It, I mean, yes, that's, it really that's is. just another, another reason this case is just so, so important. How expensive or time-consuming are these sorts of appeals?
1: They don't have to be very expensive or time-consuming. As We alluded to earlier, those first two levels of appeals are pretty straightforward. It's purely on the papers. So it can be as simple as having a nurse or in-house attorney write a letter, maybe submitting some additional medical records or documentation, and then following the process that the contractor establishes for those first two levels. So you don't even need to hire outside counsel to just get your appeal on the books, so to speak.
0: Okay. So with the two appeal levels done, then you're at the ALJ point. Right this is where the backlog kicks in. Mm -hmm. So here is where the provider should seek the injunction. Right. If if they
1: are facing bankruptcy. Right. Right. Exactly.
0: So hopefully other providers will take on these sorts of suits to put some pressure on this uh, appeals process that is not working. We've got to have some solutions to this.
1: Right. So obviously, given the backlog, it's going to be a long time before you get to a hearing. And that means Again, as we said before, once you pass that second level, if you haven't won, recruitment is going to take place. For a smaller overpayment, maybe that's not that big of a deal, and the provider can sort of tolerate that recruitment. Uh, and at least, again, you have that challenge of the allegation of the overpayment. And so that means that it's less likely that they could rely on that as a credible allegation of fraud. But if the provider's business is really threatened by a massive recruitment, as we saw in this Fifth Circuit case, It seems now within the Fifth Circuit, certainly, that seeking an injunction in district court is a viable option that can help the company weather this lengthy appeals process.
0: So it seems like hopefully more of these sorts of suits would really help put some pressure on the agency to look for a better solution to the backlog problem. And I mean, in my view, these recoupments just don't make sense
1: especially when they're taking place. We've got to find a solution to uh, have the full due process play out before the money is recouped. Anne, so what kind of cell phone did you carry around with you in 2001, if you remember? That's kind of a random question, (laughs) but it's embarrassing,
0: but I know the answer. Go on. I had a light blue Nokia phone. It was really cute. I thought it was pretty tiny.
1: Was it one of kind of the brick style, though? Like not a flip phone, right? No,
0: it was thinner, and it had this cute little antenna that I would pull (laughs) up and down when I received a phone call.
1: I remember those. And did you ever engage in any sort of telehealth activities using (laughs) that striking light blue phone? Uh,
0: No. In fact, I could not even text anyone. I could only receive... Phone calls and initiate phone calls. <laughs> so on you that had a phone. a
1: phone that only was a phone.
0: <laughs> you got it.
1: So it's hard to believe, but in 2001, actually, according to a recent OIG report, Medicare did spend about sixty thousand dollars on telehealth. That shocks me. I know. I don't know who who had technology that was able to do that. Certainly not me. But needless to say, between 2001 and 2015. Given the improvements to our technology, Medicare spending on telehealth increased about 250 times over that period.
0: Yeah, I think this says a lot about the improvements in technology. But of course, as spending increases, so does oversight, which has resulted in the OIG looking at these telehealth claims and issuing this report.
1: Right. So the OIG, as we mentioned, has issued this report and they analyzed claims from 2014 to 2015 for compliance with Medicare's billing rules. They found that 31 out of 100 sampled claims did not meet the requirements. Not a
0: great percentage.
1: No, not great. uh, Though we'll sort of unpack why in a minute. But, of course, in classic CMS fashion, as we've discussed before, they then extrapolate that error rate across all kinds of telehealth claims and estimate that Medicare paid $3.7 million in noncompliant claims.
0: Okay, but wait, Medicare telehealth services are different from what we sometimes see as available to -to direct-to-consumer offerings using our cell phones these days. How is this different?
1: You're right. Medicare doesn't pay for sort of what we would think of in routine, kind of like a FaceTime physician or something like that. Medicare beneficiaries have to be at what's called an originating site, like a doctor's office or a skilled nursing facility. And other critical piece is that the beneficiary must be in a rural part of the country. So those are two pretty strong. Pretty um, narrow. Yeah, yeah pretty exactly. narrow rules. Limiting rules, right.
0: So Medicare doesn't pay for direct-to-consumer telehealth services yet. Right. Um, and these narrow rules obviously impede, you know, the full use of telemedicine technology.
1: Exactly. And in, in addition to kind of the where the beneficiary is, the rural location, the originating site, They also even limit the technology communications component itself in that they require there to be interactive video communication with real time interaction between the patient and physician, like we have in some of our other telemedicine platforms now. But other telehealth platforms today use what's called store and forward or asynchronous technology. And so, unlike kind of a Skype call, you have in a store and forward system, you've got the patient who's almost like a text, who's going to send x-rays or videos or freeform text to the physician at their leisure. And then the physician can review those submissions at a later time and provide feedback to the patient. So it's not simultaneous, sort of real-time interaction. And currently, Medicare does not pay for those types of services.
0: So probably in light of these, I would call them the three narrow rules. One, originating site being a doctor's office. Two, Beneficiary being in a rural part of the country, and three, these real time interactions. My guess is those items were the downfall that the OIG found in, in looking at these claims.
1: Yeah, exactly. And as you might guess, the vast majority of what they call unallowable claims were because the beneficiary was at a non rural site. Part of the problem there, I think, is it can be really hard to figure out if you are at a rural site or a non rural site. By and large, it's driven by the metropolitan statistical areas, which are managed by the Office of Management and Budget. But there's a little bit more complicating factors. And so sometimes it may be that people just didn't really know that they were not at what the government determines to be a rural site. Some other claims were that the patient was at his or her residence. Again, as you sort of might think about in more current telemedicine technology. Right. At right. It's frustrating
0: right. because that's the whole idea that the patient would not have to come to a doctor's office. but oh, Right.
1: Well. Yeah. So again, sort of Medicare is a little bit behind the times on this. And then it, there were a few instances where the physicians were using that store and forward technology instead of the real-time video. And one sort of interesting claim where the physician was actually abroad outside of the United States providing some mental health counseling services to a patient who was at a rural medical center, but The Medicare rules require the physician providing the remote services to be within the U.S.
0: So what should providers do in response to this OIG audit?
1: Well, I think one of the more interesting pieces of the audit is actually CMS's response to OIG, which, of course, is also published with the OIG report. And they explicitly state that they are expanding the services that can be provided as Medicare telehealth services and reducing the administrative burden for healthcare providers they go on to say that improving access to telehealth services is sort of part of their mission to modernize Medicare payments. So that's favorable for everyone who's looking to expand these services. And providers who are currently seeking Medicare reimbursement for telehealth need, of course, to be aware of the current requirements. But it's likely that some of these limitations may dissipate as telemedicine becomes more popular and Potentially could be viewed by Medicare as a way to reduce expenditures overall instead of just another cost item.
0: That's a great point, Courtney. The key is really going to be seeing Medicare expenditures go down because of telemedicine. And on that note, in particular, the February budget deal included some expanded coverage opportunities, right?
1: Yes. So, two of the biggest changes that we're going to see are one, allowing Medicare Advantage plans to provide additional telehealth coverage in 2020. And then, two, allowing accountable care organizations to increase their telehealth services. Got it. So, the full extent of this expansion is going to be handled in rulemaking. So, we're not exactly sure what the full impact will be, but there's certainly the potential, and it seems like congressional intent there to allow more Medicare beneficiaries to have access and benefit from telehealth.
0: It seems frustrating that we'd have to wait till 2020, but (laughs) um, hopefully, there will be some positive things to come out in the rulemaking process.
1: Maybe we'll have the iPhone 20 to use for our awesome telehealth services then. We'd like to thank Lauren Wallace for contributing to this segment.
0: That completes this edition of Jones Day Talks Healthcare and Life Sciences. Thank you for joining us. I'm Ann Hollenbeck. You can reach me with questions at ahollenbeck at
1: jonesday.com. And I'm Courtney Carroll at ccarroll at jonesday.com.
0: Thank you for listening to Jones Day Talks. Comments heard on Jones Day Talks should not be construed as legal advice regarding any specific facts or circumstances. The opinions expressed on Jones Day Talks are those of lawyers appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect those of the firm. For more information, please visit jonesday.com.